1: Welcome
0: to the Smirconish Podcast for Independent Minds.
1: Quick non sequitur. During the, uh, the very brief intermission at the top of the hour, I was, I was watching on the cable outlets this videotape that has come to light of three Arkansas cops just kicking the shit out of some guy. Really, really hard to watch. And I, I watch these things, and there have been so many of them. And I try and keep an open mind and I, I try and say to myself, okay, what could have directly preceded what I'm watching on television? I mean, the banging of his head into the cement and one of the guys just kneeing him in the back and then uh, police not helping themselves by pointing at a bystander who's filming it and telling them to get away. So I'll wait for the full story, but it's, it's, it's very hard, I guess is my point to keep an open mind in this case. And, and if, if the race, the three guys are white, and so too is the, the man that they're, quote, taking into custody. But if he were black, uh, I, I think that uh, that area would be on fire today. And obviously, it's problematic and disgusting no matter what the races are that are involved. But follow that case. Of course, we're covering it at smirconish.com. Also, today, posted at com a piece from the weekend that caught my eye three person byline from the New York Times. Maggie Haberman. Katie Benner and Glenn Thrush, the best look inside the White House in Trump's waning days. And of course, with relevance to the documents that ended up at Mar-a-Lago, this is Glenn Thrush. Hey, Glenn, thank you so much for being here. Take me into the Oval Office four days before he leaves and paint the picture. What would we have seen? Well,
2: the first thing I want to say just before we do that is I saw that videotape, too, Michael, and it is uh, it, it's Herb. unbelievable. And I know I know we talk a lot about um, the former president, uh, as we rightfully should. I cover the Department of Justice. But, you know, the, the Department of Justice uh, under Garland, people I don't think are paying attention to this, has picked up the pace of its investigation of local police departments. I just covered probably a month and a half ago. Uh, a, a new investigation into the louisiana state police again with a beating of uh this was a black suspect a couple of black suspects in fact one who died and one was injured so i mean this is just something that that is just an immense problem in the. well and thank thank god priority. thank
1: god everybody's yeah. walking around with a camera in their pocket otherwise yeah. we'd we'd be none the wiser about this case in arkansas
2: no and there was another there was another and i'm sorry i'll, I'll get to trump in a second but there was another incident occurred in which a black man was detained on his front lawn i mean we're just this you'd think that with this constant vigilance this would be abating but it just it just isn't um so so anyway (laughs) the the four days before donald trump i take you back uh, in the annals of history um donald trump did not want to leave office there there is the greatest understatement in history right um and it's interesting to note, and, and in, in the course of our reporting, what we really discovered is it was a, phys- it was a physical manifestation of, of his unwillingness to concede defeat. It wasn't an act. was this pr- procrastination, essentially, in terms of him both packing up the Oval Office and packing up the private residence. With the additional uh, matter of him uh, apparently hoarding two dozen boxes, some of which contained potentially... Sensitive and classified material. So, it, it, our report, what our reporting really showed was that this unbelievable public reluctance was matched with this with this confusion in private that led to this mad dash where they were just shoving things in boxes and, and, and packing them out.
1: Four days out, the personal photos were still arrayed behind him at the resolute desk. Well, you know what's
2: funny? The bookend on this, Michael, is I, I went into the Oval; it had to be. February, March of 2017, and all he had was the picture of his dad, Fred Trump, there. And I remember going back again six weeks later, there was just Fred Trump there. So he accumulated over the years. Um, yeah, so, so he uh, – we have people um, inside the building who, who talk about sort of walking into the Oval Office suite. And for those – for the uninitiated, the geography of the White House is that you have the Oval Office, and then you have a suite something called the outer Oval Office, and then you have the dining room off to the side of the Oval Office, uh, which Trump uh, affixed with a a massive flat-screen TV. Uh, And and that dining room is really where he did most of his work. The Oval Office and the Resolute Desk was much more of a show place. So there wasn't really much going on in the Oval. It was really static. But the area, just close your eyes and envision this, the area around it, these two sets of offices plus the dining room were an absolute shambles.
1: I mean, I I was only in the Oval Office with him once, and to your account, it was pristine. You You could have eaten off the Resolute desk because I guess he didn't do any business there. I never went into that private dining room. But by your account, it sounds like the exact way that he managed his office, at Trump Tower in that he, he just had papers stacked everywhere and, and loved keeping all of his ephemera around him.
2: Yeah, and that's where, you know, that's where it gets kind of kind of borderline, right? On, on one hand, this does certainly fit a pattern of this guy. He is a bit of a pack rat. right? And I remember the, the one time that I was up in his office in Trump Tower, I mean, you literally had to edge your way in. And, you know, he's not a neat guy. <laughs> right. I think the areas around him, kind of the ceremonial spaces, tend to be maintained and manicured and, and he doesn't sort of abide that kind of sloppiness in other people. But you know, like it, it was very New York y you know, his office. Um but but and and to some extent you can sort of say, Hey, this is the nature of the guy. He likes collecting stuff. The 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 famous thing is everyone who went into his office in Trump Tower had to look at Shaquille O'Neal's size eighteen sneaker. Um but you know and and he clearly viewed that way uh, viewed some of the material that he took back with him kim jong-un's letters uh perhaps uh president biden's letter to him but the 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 contrast that uh, with what we have seen in terms of the public documents filed by the department of justice the unsealed search warrant which indicates that there was sensitive uh and, and potentially classified material in there so So on one hand, yes, this fits a certain pattern that he has had throughout his entire career. But the real unknown here is what was that other material and why was it there? um, And and how sensitive was it?
1: I'm left wondering after reading your piece whether he was even aware of what he was maintaining control of at Mar-a-Lago. In other words, it, it seems like it was so slapdash, so haphazard that... I wonder if you had said to Trump before the search warrant was executed, do you even know what's in the boxes that are still at Mar-a-Lago? Would he have had an answer? Do you do you think he would have had an answer?
2: I think he would have had an answer. I don't think he would have been able to say it with great precision. But I think, you know, Donald Trump is somebody who tends to control his own environment. I mean, he clearly, you know, he, he does not necessarily he is not attentive necessarily to detail, but he is attentive to possession. And so anything that he would have kept in his own personal possession, I presume he would have at least had a general idea of it. And, and Michael, I want to add one other thing here. You know, this is not done in a vacuum. The, the White House is, is not, uh, uh, you know, it, it, it is not sort of a play space. There are protocols and rules. The, the, the thing about being president, and I remember talking with Obama and Dennis McDonough about this during Obama's period in office, is it's a very structured environment. Now, Trump brought a lot of entropy into that, but there were still processes in place. And the two individuals who were responsible for ensuring that material went back to the National Archives are very simple to identify. Mark Meadows, his chief of staff, who didn't do very much, and in fact, we report moved very much in the opposite direction by trying to hand over crossfire hurricane materials to a sympathetic journalist. Uh, And Pat Sipalone, his counsel, and and in terms of culpability, I think what our reporting kind of kind of showed, and there might be future reporting that undermines this, this conclusion I'm about to make, is is that Meadows was really the one who was more inattentive. Sipalone had a lot on his plate um, as counsel, and not only that, Sipalone was not in regular communication with Trump in the last couple of weeks because Sipalone quite frankly, wasn't telling Trump what he wanted to hear about the outcome of the election. And Glenn, so. so yeah, I was going to
1: say, simply stated, like, none of this stuff is his, right? It's all it's all the possession of the United States government. Obama may have left him that traditional note, just like he left for Biden, but it's not Trump's possession.
2: Absolutely not. And look, here's the thing that's really what I found most striking. So I started calling around, you know, I, I covered the White House for, for almost a decade. And, and you know, uh, people were sort of comparing um, Trump's, behavior towards the end with Obama's, and that's fine, right? But what I wanted to know is how did it compare with other people in the, in the administration, particularly Mike Pence? So I did some additional reporting on that, and what I was able to determine is that Pence and uh, uh, Jacob counsel really spent like the last month diligently uh, cataloging, indexing, and boxing off the paperwork to the National Archives with the stated goal, they said, of ensuring that not a single classified document was in Pence's possession when he left the White House. So you don't need to go back through the years to have an unflattering comparison to how Trump behaved. You just need to look a 100 yards across West Executive Drive.
3: This is the Smirconish Podcast from SiriusXM.
1: Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service... Processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math and see how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to netsuite.com slash smirconish, netsuite.com slash smirconish, netsuite.com slash smirconish.
3: Listen to Michael live weekdays on POTUS, Sirius XM channel 124 and on the SXM app.
1: You also reconstruct in this piece that the timeline as as best you know it, quote, archives officials did not get what they wanted until they traveled to Mar-a-Lago and retrieved 15 boxes in January of 2022. The lingering question is: What was the break point? Like, wherein was the moment that Justice decided, "That's it. We're we're no longer going to negotiate and cajole. We're going to go and make application for a search warrant."
2: Well, I think there are two. I think let's call one a decision point and one a break point. I think the critical decision point. All the misshapes that we described going on in the White House, however crazy it was, however many boxes made it down to Mar-a-Lago there was an acceptable way out after that. So he could have been frenzied and he could have been uh, resentful and hoarded stuff that he shouldn't have uh, hoarded and it finds its way down to Mar-a-Lago. Okay. You know, it's still no harm, no foul if he turns over the documents that he needs to turn over in February. He didn't do that. So that is the decision point. And the big question here is why did he decide at that moment in time when he could have just pressed the reset button, and all we would be talking about is just a little extraneous gossip now. Why did he decide to go down this road? That's number one. And then the the breaking point appears to have been in early June when, and again, the reporting on this is a bit fuzzy, but there was a determination made by the Department of Justice that materials were being moved around inside of Mar-a-Lago. There's been some talk about it being on videotape, a lot of discussion about whether or not Trump wants to turn over those tapes. In any event, um, materials were moving around. So it was the combination of, uh, and as we reported last week, lest I forget, um, one of Donald Trump's lawyers signed some sort of an affidavit saying that the materials that the archives and DOJ had requested had been turned over. So it's the combination of that affidavit being proven not to be true, whether or not Trump told his lawyers what he had in his possession is a big question here. Uh, combined with the movement of materials apparently observed on the videotape. So you have a decision point in February in which Trump had had an opportunity, and really all through the spring, early summer, he could have done this right. Uh, and then this decision that took place in June, and again, the big question looming over all of this, just as, as I said at the beginning, is what is in these materials that made it so urgent for the Department of Justice to do that. I presume we'll find out at some point. I don't know quite when that's going to happen.
1: I referenced the private dining room, but it's not just there that he hoarded materials. Based on your reporting, it looks like also in the residence. Like, do we know what would he take to the residence and why would he keep things there?
2: No, but we have a good sense that he would bring materials back. You know, the irony here is Trump was known as a guy who was sort of a, a low paper guy, you know, again, my reference point with Obama is Barack Obama used to take significant briefing materials back to the residents um, to study at night. He was a bit of a nighthawk. I don't know if you remember all of those things. Sure, yep. Um, Trump, Trump did not have those characteristics. So the presidential daily briefing, which is kind of what he receives every morning, you know, with Obama could run to 20 or 30 pages. With Trump, they turned it into essentially a PowerPoint presentation that would last three or four minutes. So Trump was not exactly – politically going back to the residents reading policy papers so but he was but like i said before he is a person who viewed the presidency with a sort of a proprietary view it was the it's the first job the man had ever had in his entire life that did not involve having his name on the you know printed on the side of the building
1: do we know and, anything about the circumstances in which he would flush the toilet
2: um, Maggie Haberman has done some good reporting on this. You know, we, early on in, in his term, uh, he, would, he would often rip papers in half, particularly his own notes. And again, referring him back to his history, remember who his legal mentor was. It was Roy Cohn, the famous Washington and New York fixer who got his career started on the McCarthy Committee in the 50s, who counseled him on how to deal with with litigation. Donald Trump, that's the other thing I want, I think, listeners really need to understand. And this is where things get interesting. Donald Trump views law courts as being his home turf. He files a lot of litigation. He has been sued dozens of times. He feels that he has the capacity to operate in that environment. He goes through lawyers you know, we've been, I think, a lot of outlets have been putting together rosters of how many lawyers he's had work, working for him over the last five years. It is staggering. So Trump has a sense that he has some mastery over this process. I think what, he, what he's beginning to understand is that a department, a determined investigation by a United States Department of Justice is something very different than he has dealt with in the past.
1: And, Glenn, one other aspect of this, I I thought maybe the most interesting nugget is what ran at the very end of this lengthy piece. He did leave a note for Biden, and apparently it was warm.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, we had heard a bit about that in the past. Uh, You know, interestingly, um, uh, but that's, again, very much in keeping with Trump. We saw some reporting, uh, was it over the weekend or late last week, that he attempted a rapprochement with Hillary Clinton. And having covered the Clinton campaign extensively in 2016, I can tell you that wasn't going to happen. But Biden's a very different kind of character. And it it frankly just uh, it doesn't really uh, doesn't really surprise me. The the funny thing was at the end of that piece, the kicker of the piece, we report that. And uh, I called over to the White House a couple of times to ask if that document was going to be placed in the archives Uh, just because I thought that would be a fairly decent sure. they, yeah. they did not. I should tell you, they did not give me an answer. I don't know what that means. It probably doesn't mean anything, but I thought that.
1: OK, but, it, but, but by, by your prior description, that is the possession of the United States. That is not Joe Biden's to take to Rehoboth and frame.
2: Absolutely. And, 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 and here's the reason, you know, less people think this is just kind of bureaucratic paper shuffling. We are talking about posterity. What if, what if Thomas Jefferson had pocketed the Declaration of Independence? I mean, he, you know, he felt a certain pride of ownership over that. So these are public documents. When you are, when you are the President of the United States, you are a servant, a servant of, of the citizens of this country. And, and to a certain extent, beyond the kind of material accumulation that this represents, The fact that every piece of paper, every scrap of paper, every bit of deliberation uh, is subject principally, most of them are subject to the Presidential Record Record Act, is an affirmation of that relationship between the presidency and the population, that one is a servant. The president is a servant of the people and not the other way around.
3: This is the Smirconish Podcast from Sirius XM.
1: NetSuite.com slash Smirconish. NetSuite.com slash Smirconish. Welding instructor
0: Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills.
1: There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle
0: memory that they need. Learn more at Meta.com slash Metaverse Impact.
3: Listen to Michael live weekdays on POTUS, Sirius XM channel 124 and on the SXM app.
1: One final thing. I, I wondered because I, I've, you know, we've speculated a lot, and I've I've had untold conversations, untold number of conversations with listeners where we wonder why did he hang on to things. Um, I wondered if maybe he had an eye toward a Trump presidential library. You never read anything about Trump planning a library. Do you have any reporting on that? No, none
2: whatsoever. And 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 again, hearkening back to hearkening back to the end of the Obama administration. I mean, the, past, the final six months of the Obama administration was, was about the establishment of the, of the Obama Library. I mean, the, 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 you, could, you can almost argue that the presidency's principal focus towards the end. And I should point out one little ironic tidbit—not really ironic, but interesting tidbit—is that the individual who was responsible for that process, archiving material in the administration, moving it over, moving it over to the Obama Foundation, was none other than Dana Remus, who became uh, Joe Biden's. First counsel in the White House, so the person who was in charge of that was the person who was on the receiving end of Trump's uh, of Trump's chaotic transition. But um, no, nothing. Haven't heard a single tick about it.
1: That was a great report. Thank you so much, A, for writing it, and B, your willingness to come on and, and flesh it out. I'm much obliged. Great talking to you. That's Glenn Thrush from the New York Times, ladies and gentlemen. The the end of the piece, as I referenced, it says this. That afternoon, Mr. Biden arrived in the Oval Office and found a letter waiting for him in a drawer from Mr. Trump. It was two large pages with Trump's distinctive handwriting visible to an aide watching Biden read it. The new president remarked that Mr. Trump had been more gracious in the letter than he'd anticipated. It was one of Mr. Biden's first records that will have to be turned over to the archives. On the political significance of all of this, I direct you to Mike Allen at Axios, who talks about several new polls that show a rallying effect for Trump. Again, the data that came out in the last couple of days, you can slice it and dice it to advance most any cause. But here's the way that Mike Allen presented it. A poll released last week from St. Anselm College in New Hampshire shows Trump once again in a commanding primary position over DeSantis. 50 to 29. In June, a University of New Hampshire poll was the first in a wave of surveys to show DeSantis with momentum against Trump. DeSantis and Trump were statistically tied. So in June, in New Hampshire, they were statistically tied. Now, it's Trump over DeSantis, 50-29. And then the NBC News poll, which came out this weekend, asked GOP voters whether they're more of a supporter of Trump Or of the Republican Party. More for Trump or more for the Republican Party. Trump support spiked. 41% said they support Trump more than the party. That is a gain of seven points over the course of this summer. In May, 58% of Republicans said they identified more with the party. 34% with Trump. Bottom line, these polls reflect the Republican mindset of the more they hate him, the more I love him. An effect that Trump instinctively recognizes and exploits. That's the whole Peter Wenner argument. Remember when Peter was here on the heels of publishing in the Atlantic and saying that it's it's changed now. It's it's not so much that people for Trump are for Trump. They are in opposition to all those forces. New York Times, CNN, you know, AOC, Pelosi, Schumer, etc. It's it's because of the perception of who's against him that people are rallying around him. And of course, I remind you, and you don't need the reminding, that as soon as that search warrant came to light, who was one of the first people to come to his aid publicly and to rail against the execution of the search warrant? It was none other than Ron DeSantis.
0: The Smirconish Podcast for Independent Minds.
3: Listen to Michael Smirconish live weekdays from 9 a.m. to noon east on Sirius XM's POTUS Channel 124 or anytime on the SXM app.
0: Connect with Michael on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and at Smirconish.com. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing.